First Chronicles 16, beloved. First Chronicles 16. I love to hear your singing, especially when you seem to be singing heartily. And it uh, does the soul good to hear the hearty praises of the people of God. I've said it before, we have the capability of being musical. And the Lord has given this as a gift to man. And it's to be used, of course, correctly in an edifying way. And when it is done to edification, it truly obtains that objective. So, at some point uh, this year, we will commence or get back into, I should say, uh, our studies in Hebrews in the morning and look in the evening. But uh, as was different this morning, it's different tonight as well. I want to deal with something just bring some thoughts to you that have been swirling around in my mind for a little while. And I'm using here a text from, from 1 Chronicles 16. You will see here that there is the assembly of the people of God beginning to worship together. In Jerusalem, the moving of the place of worship and the relocation of the Ark of the Covenant. And then there is this, this song that is expressed. Then in verse 36, we have this statement, First Chronicles 16, 36. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, or Amen, and praised the Lord. It's that last little detail given to us, all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord, that I want us to think about here tonight for a little time. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord and ask for His help around His Word. As always, we need divine help in considering what is spiritually discerned. Our gracious God, we thank Thee for the praises of Thy people, and we can't begin to calculate the number of times where we have been helped and strengthened and perhaps even kept from backsliding or recovered from our backslidings because of the influence of corporate praise. We ask that Thou wilt help us to value it among the adults here, it seems to be valued, and we're thankful for that. We pray that another generation will learn to value and treasure corporate worship, the corporate assembly of the people of God and the expressions of their praise. Oh God, let another generation arise who know how to sing, who know how to enter into praise with all of their being. Let not thy people be mere spectators, but those who participate and truly engage in corporate worship. May that be strengthened more and more here, and may it be done for thy glory. Again, forgive our sins. Help us around the word and advance thy kingdom. 
and encourage the saints tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was first saved, 2002, on occasion we would visit Dr. Ian Paisley's church in Belfast, the Martyrs Memorial. There are certain occasions and events in our denomination uh, which would be held particularly in that building in part because of its size. It was able to house free Presbyterians coming from all directions for especially events such as what was known as the Easter Convention, a series of meetings over Easter, Friday night, I think there was a Saturday meeting at times as well, and then Mondays, and Mondays used to be a full day, three services, I think it began at 11, three, and then seven, uh, all three services all through the Monday, uh, different preachers, sometimes Americans as well, I got exposed to some interesting American preachers at times that Dr. Paisley would invite over to Northern Ireland. And they certainly had their different styles in the way they brought the word. Some of them would be known to you, perhaps all would be known to you here tonight. But there was a gentleman in Dr. Paisley's church who used to say amen at regular intervals through the service and through the preaching. And I'm not of a nervous disposition, so like it's not like it was bothering me in any particular way. Uh, but at times, the frequency of these interjections and worse, the timing of them was, let's just say, a little irritating. For example, Dr. Paisley would say something like, the church is in a mess and the devil is having a field day. Amen. And I was like, no, no, we're not. This is not, this is not an appropriate time for that. And I'm sure you have witnessed that. I'm sure it's not exclusive to uh, Northern Ireland, where there may be that kind of uh, interjection of amen. Uh, in fact, I've heard it here, uh, not from any regular attender, but uh, I've heard it here on occasion, an amen being expressed audibly at a time where in my mind I'm, going, I'm not quite sure that that was an appropriate time for amen. And some of you have grown up perhaps in Baptist circles, and this would be not just something that was regular, but it would actually be canvassed by the preacher. So he would be saying something like, can I get an amen? Or sometimes he would say amen, and there was the assumed question mark at the end of it, amen? And you're, you know, you're all meant to respond amen to that, which maybe it's my Scottish influences or whatever, seems a little synthetic, perhaps at times a little manipulative, but whatever. And then, of course, you've got those churches where it goes beyond that. You have the collective amens from sections of the congregation that form a kind of rhythmic dialogue with the preacher. So as he's preaching and he's saying certain statements, there's this, this chorus of amen that comes, and it kind of goes in this wave uh, back and forth throughout the entirety of the sermon. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but that exists in the, this part of the world in various places. On the other hand, of course, you have churches where the only person you may hear say amen is the preacher. And I would say that for the most part, that's us here where there isn't always. There was one this morning uh, with the, in the middle of the preaching, but we tend to be a little more uh, silent, let's say. And, and part of this is no doubt shaped by culture, shaped by our, our disposition, and that's maybe not all wrong or bad. Uh, there's certainly a, a universality to silence, so whenever you break the silence, 
it, it can be culturally influenced, no doubt, in how that is expressed. I've been thinking about this and thinking about the appropriate use of the congregation adding their affirmation at various junctures of the service. And I'm going to say this outright. I'm not here to change anything particularly, but just to pepper you with some thoughts about what the Scripture says. And perhaps, if I can just state maybe one objective from the outset, perhaps to think about the power and the warrant that there is to, at certain times, saying, Amen, along with the preacher, so that maybe after the corporate pastoral prayer, there is, after the Amen, there is the congregation saying Amen. I'm doing so in a particular fashion that is decent and in order. So with that said, I want us to think about it because we have here, historically, where there is worship going on, a corporate assembly, and they're singing their praises, and all the people then said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Everyone is there agreeing and saying, Amen. And it would seem then that there are occasions where this is appropriate, where people say together, Amen. So in looking at this, I want us to consider a number of heads. First of all, and I've, I've titled this the communal amen, or the communal amen. Um, I've heard it referred to in that way, so I just took that as a title, the communal amen, uh, and I trust then the Lord will help us as we think about this. This is a little more of a, obviously a topical, and I hope you'll follow with me as we just consider this, and at least that we'll have something to think about as we go home from the worship of the Lord here tonight. First of all, the scriptural meaning of amen. From the outset, I will tell you, if you want to get a really edifying and helpful uh, sermon on the word amen, I encourage you to listen to the late Dr. Cairns when he was dealing with the Lord's Prayer, and he came to the end and dealt with the word amen as part of the Lord's Prayer. I listened to that sermon. I'm not really dealing with, his emphasis was entirely different, and what he was dealing with was different. I certainly could have incorporated some of it. I didn't, but I did listen to it, and I was so edified just listening to that message. So I, I, I commend that to you just in terms of generally thinking about the power that there is in the word amen. It is, of course, a Hebrew word, and the common understanding of the word Hebrew, and if, if you can kind of pull away, we're so familiar with the word, sometimes we're not sure exactly what it is we're saying when we use the word. But if you look at the Hebrew, the term amen usually is truly, surely, let it be so. It carries the basic meaning of being reliable, trustworthy, or firm. The etymology of amen is related to other terms that are used in the scriptures, the nouns for steadiness and trustworthiness and truth are used, and it's connected with those. When the uh, Septuagint was put together, the, the scholars, the Jewish scholars, sought to put together a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. It includes a number of instances of amen, and there, there's this recognition of its particular purpose 
within the worship of God. The, the time when they use it and they, they don't translate, they don't change it. They kind of, they just give it in the Hebrew. It doesn't change. And we still use it. When you're saying amen, you're essentially using a Hebrew word, which is interesting in and of itself, why the word hasn't been changed. There's been some discussion and maybe debate and uh, thought over the period of time. Would it be better for us to use what it means rather than using a Hebrew word? But it has been, become so embedded into the fabric of cultures across the world that there's no point in changing it now. And you find that then in the Septuagint where it gets used. They, they put in the Hebrew into that Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures. They also translate other instances into Greek using various terms, including the verb may it be, the adjective true, faithful, the adverb truly. So that's just some of the sense of the meaning. We're talking about firm, dependable, reliable, trustworthy, and true. And this expression then, may it be, may it come to pass. But I want you to think also with me the historic use of amen. First, in the Old Testament, how it gets used in the Old Testament. The Hebrew term amen occurs 30 times in the Old Testament and primarily serves as a solemn affirmation by a person or an assembly at the end of an oath, a curse, a blessing, a declaration, a prophecy, or a doxology. And so you have different uses. It's fascinating to see how then it gets used. So let's think of it first of all as an affirmation to an oath or a curse by an individual or an assembly. Go to Numbers 5. Numbers 5. Here we have an interesting case study where there is a suspicion of adultery and there's a, a process that she is to go through. And in Numbers 5.22, Numbers 5.22, this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So she is called upon to agree with the judgment that has come upon her for the revelation of her sin. Go to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27. can't read all the verses, but from verse 15 through 26 to the end of the chapter, you'll see there, verse 14, the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, I'll just read one or two of these, cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. They're agreeing. Let this curse come upon such a person. Verse 16, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. And it continues in that fashion. In fact, Dr. Cairns points out, just coming to memory, coming to my mind, he points out there's 12 of these here, which may correlate with the fact there are 12 tribes, and you have this, this kind of whole sense in which there is this agreement of the entire body 
that are agreeing with the judgment of God, the judgments pronounced here in the cases that are given. Nehemiah 5. Go to Nehemiah 5. Now, I can't deal extensively with all of this or deliberate too much in all of these. But I just want you to give, see the, the frequency with which the word is used and the contexts in which it is used. Nehemiah 5.13 I shook my lap and said, So God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise, even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. So again, you have this, this corporate agreement. You've one instance of an individual in Numbers 5, you have the corporate aspect in Deuteronomy 27 and Nehemiah 5, where they're, they're giving affirmation to, to a curse or an oath by an individual or the corporate body. There's also then the use as an affirmation of a blessing, prayer, song, or praise to God by, again, the corporate body. We used, or I turned you to First Chronicles 16, that's where you have it in that usage, where there is this agreement in the context of praise. The Ark of the Covenant has been moved to or relocated to Jerusalem, and the people respond to the psalm of thanksgiving, saying amen and praising the Lord. You have something similar again in Nehemiah 8, where Ezra reads the book of the law, and this is how the people respond there as well. Amen, amen, and worship the Lord. You have also affirmations by individuals. I'll not turn these up, but in 1 Kings 1.36, uh, uh, Benaiah says amen in response to the king's command to appoint Solomon as the new king. In Jeremiah 11 verse 5, Jeremiah says amen in response to God's curse upon the people if they disregard his covenant or confirmation of his oath to give them the land of promise if they obey him. So he's, he's saying amen, let it be, judgment or blessing. And in Jeremiah 28, verse 6, Jeremiah gives what seems, what you could describe as a mocking amen to Hananiah's false prophecy before he then corrects him and gives a true insight into the mind of God there in Jeremiah 28. So, so this is some of the use in the Old Testament. You have these various instances of individuals and the collective body making use of this word really as an agreement to something that is going on. It is also used in various ways to close out things as well uh, through the, the book of Psalms. You'll find the book of Psalms have their natural divisions. Various Psalms are collected together. And at the close of those collections, you'll find a double amen at the close of them. We came across one of them this morning in our, our reading of Psalm 41 because that brings us to the close of the first book of the section of the Psalms, and it has this double amen that's used there. It's the same in Psalm 72, 19, 89, 52, and Psalm 106, 48. You have the amen closing out there as well. But we also have it used, and this is interesting both when you look at the Old Testament and then you go to the New, and I, I don't want to delve into this much, but you have God taking the term amen in a way to describe himself. In Isaiah 65, verse 16, it uses this term 
to refer to God. So it speaks of, if we go there, in fact, just turn there, just so you see it, Isaiah 65. Because what is interesting to me is that when the Lord Jesus Christ then because gets described as the Amen in the book of Revelation, that a title is being ascribed to him that is stated of God, and it just undergirds the argument of his, his deity. Isaiah 65, verse 16. That he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. The God of amen. It could be translated that way just equally. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. So here you have the word being used to describe God. He's the God of amen, the God that is faithful, the God that is true. And our Lord Jesus then gets described, and that's a study for yourself just to think through. If, if God is described this way and Jesus is described this way, it certainly argues, at least in part, the case for the deity, the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we have the New Testament use of it as well, thinking about how it's historically being used in the Old Testament and now in the New. Think first of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might be surprised at just how frequently the word amen is found in the New Testament and in relation to our Savior. Throughout his life and ministry, the word amen is used over and over and over again, but perhaps not in the way in which you might imagine. Some of you will be aware, no doubt, that our Lord Jesus began certain statements or certain expressions by the use of what we have in our uh, English translation, the word verily. That word verily is the same word. It's the word amen. And so our Lord Jesus, through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find statements regarding verily. And then you come to John, where you have this, this doubling of the word, verily, verily, I say unto you. And each time the Lord is, is taking this, this word, and he is beginning the statement with it. Now, there's been some study as to why he did that. Why would the Lord Jesus begin a statement when traditionally, the traditional use of the word amen comes at the end of something? It's after something has been stated and then there's agreement. Agreement by the individual. Agreement by the corporate body where they assent and they say amen. Why then with our Lord Jesus when he's about to say something of note and worth, not that he ever said anything that wasn't of note and worth, but when he's underlining something, he would begin the statement with amen. Now, I just pepper you with some of the thoughts and the study regarding this, because I found it at least interesting. I don't know how dogmatic we can be about the intent of the Lord Jesus Christ, but if you remember, if you keep in mind that here we're dealing with the prophet, the prophet, and historically, prophets in the past would begin with, thus saith the Lord. And by stating things in that way, by prefacing what they were about to say with, thus saith the Lord, the prophet was reflecting himself as a conduit for the mind of God. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's not saying, thus saith the Lord. Because he is not a conduit for the mind of God. He is the very source of of the mind of God. 
And so some have concluded that, that he, he is undergirding that by the use of this term, amen, that he begins how everyone ends, that he, he shows his deity and shows the authority of his word and the fact that he does not have to wait for corporate agreement to the things that he says. These things are true because they're being uttered from the lips of the Son of God himself. So when you read through the Gospels and you see over and over again, verily, this is being used, the majority of the use in the New Testament is from the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul also uses the term, amen. He uses it to close prayers and benedictions and usually accompanies it with some expression of blessing God or being thankful to God. Uh, the first time we have Paul using it, at least chronologically, in, or rather in sequentially through our New Testament, is in Romans, Romans 1. Romans 1, 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And he does the same through Romans 9, 5, 11, 36, 15, 33, 16, 27, Galatians 1, 5, 6, 18, Ephesians 3, 21, Philippians 4, 20, and on and on it goes. He uses this word often as a way to reflect blessing toward God or benediction upon the people. Now, there are a few other additional uses of the word amen that I want you to think about with me here. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Because in what we've said regarding the New Testament so far, there's nothing particularly that deals with the corporate aspect. First Corinthians 14. What can be a challenging passage for, for many when they read it for the first few times, dealing with this, this gift of, of tongues. But if I can just say that what the apostle is arguing here as he teaches the church on the proper use of the gift is helping them to see the, the absolute vital aspect of understanding when it comes to what happens in corporate gatherings. If you don't understand what's going on, no one, or at least those who don't understand, they are not benefiting. And so it's crucial what he essentially helps them to see is make sure everyone understands. If they don't understand, they can't be edified. If they're not being edified, what's the point? And so he makes cases regarding how it should be properly used and has this kept in mind. Now, look then at 1 Corinthians 14. Let's see. First, let's read from verse 14. If I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. The point here is understanding. There must be understanding. There has to be comprehension. Verse 16, Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, 
How shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. So he envisaged this. He puts this scenario, which evidently something like this was going on there, where there is this use of, of unknown languages. The gift is being exercised by those who possessed it, but there isn't interpretation and there isn't right order and there are people there who have no idea what's going on. And the apostle then is saying, how will they know? The person who doesn't follow, how will they know? How will they be able to say amen at thy giving of thanks? When there's a benediction, when there's a prayer, how does he know the right time to say amen? Now, the whole subject of the context here is one thing, and I don't want to delve into that any more than I already have. But my purpose of addressing this or bringing this to your attention is there is implied in this the use of amen in the corporate gatherings. And that the use of amen follows a logical and, let's say, the unintelligible following along with what's going on in the corporate assemblies. And at appropriate junctures, there is this punctuated expression of agreement that when there is blessings of God, praises to God, benedictions for the people, expressions like that, that happen in corporate gatherings, it's punctuated. There is this corporate following with that where everyone is engaged and Paul's assuming that when people come to church, they don't switch off. When people come to church, they're, they're engaged. Their, their minds are turned on. And they're following every aspect. And they're engaging with all of their might in each part. And then there comes these junctures where it is right for someone to say amen. That's not what he's dealing with. It's not the main surface argument. But it's implied by what it is he says. That in the confusion of what was going on in Corinth, those who couldn't follow couldn't say amen. Which argues the case. There are times when the church should be saying amen. In 2 Corinthians, go over there, 2 Corinthians 1. You have this well-known text. Verse 20. All the promises of God in Him, as in Christ, are yea, and in Him, Amen unto the glory of God by us. The apostle says that these promises that God has given, they are known to be true and reliable because the foundation of them being given or bestowed upon us is not in our obedience, but in Christ's obedience. So the promises of God become yea and amen, they become assured, they become trustworthy. And so we have this concrete understanding ourselves that what God has promised will come to pass because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the promises of God 
in him are yea and in him amen. There is this understanding we all have in our minds. Now, this brings us thirdly then to the congregational employment of amen. How are we to use this together? Now, I said that the vast majority of the, the gospel references to amen don't have any semblance of, of congregational context. There may be one, at least one, passage that deviates from that general rule, and that's in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer has a certain formal tone that the Lord gives to it, where he expects when prayer is offered it to conclude. This is part of the formality of it. It concludes with amen. The word amen is utilized when prayer is offered. The very last question of the Westminster Larger Catechism because it has dealt with the Lord's Prayer, the last question that we have deals with then the word Amen as it is given in the Lord's Prayer. Question 196, what doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Amen, teacheth us to enforce our petitions with arguments which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or in any other creature, but from God. And with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency. In regard whereof, as he is able and willing to help us, so we by faith are emboldened to plead with him that he would and quietly to rely upon him that he will fulfill our requests, and to testify this our desire and assurance, we say, Amen. So, Amen becomes the way we express our faith. We've offered the prayer. Amen, then, is the terminology that we close out our prayer with an expression of confidence, we trust our God. Remember what the word means. Faithful, true, reliable, trustworthy. And we are taking that word and we are closing out our prayer in an expression of deep-seated confidence because of the God we address and our approach to Him through Christ the word amen then is not just a tidy way of closing out prayer so that everyone knows you're finished. <laughs> it's, it's not convenient. It is intentional. It is meaningful. It is packed with meaning. Again, I commend that sermon I mentioned to you because that is deliberated upon a little more by Dr. Cairns in that sermon. However, the Lord's Prayer is not necessarily understood to be corporate. So, I can't necessarily take that as saying this is how everything is to be, but giving the Old Testament and what we have in the corporate gatherings and what we have in 1 Corinthians 14, it would appear to me that there ought to be 
a use of the word amen, not just by whoever's leading the worship, but by everyone who's assembled, who's following along and in agreement with what is being said. So, a couple of things here. First, in the use of amen, an intentional, an intentional and audible expression after corporate prayers, praises, and benedictions. An intentional and audible expression after corporate prayers, praises, and benedictions. As I say, it would seem to me you collate all the passages together that you don't just have random amens. I'm not opposed to someone who feels so moved about something stated that they want to interject an audible affirmation of what has been said. Again, some of this may be cultural, but I am perfectly okay with that. I think it can be taken to excess. I think it can get out of hand and be a, like, sometimes, though people don't intend it to be, I don't think, it can really be distracting and drawing attention to themselves rather than to the focus of what is going on corporately at that moment. But there should be this intentional and audible expression at certain junctures. How audible? <laughs> How audible do you need to be? There's no decibel meter, right? We're not like some of the Greenville police who come around, and brother Eric will know this, come around and tell us to turn things down a little bit. There's no decibel meter. The Lord's not testing us regarding that. And in fact, I might say that since it is a corporate expression, it's more akin to a choir in that you're not meant to hear individual voices. It's a chorus of a multiplicity of voices coming together in agreement. That's the ideal expression at these various times. So, I lead in the pastoral prayer. Some other brother is here leading in the pastoral prayer. He says, Amen. I think this is what my conclusion is, and I don't know if the needle will change on this at all here, but I, I think there, there should be then everyone in some audible way, you don't have to shout it or anything, but there should be an audible, Amen. Amen. Prayers are being offered for you, for your family, for the lost, for our society, for our, our, our neighborhood, for the ministries, for all sorts of things. Confession of sin is going on. These things we can all assent to. And when it comes to an end, what we do is we all say amen. Amen. We are, we are, we are seizing upon that. We're holding to it, and we're asking God to bring it to pass. Let's just say it should be loud enough that your children beside you should hear you, right? They should hear you. I might not hear you, but they should hear you, because they should see that you're engaged. Children, of course, spend the time in church and in worship where they're not quite engaged in everything that's going on, right? We don't expect them to follow every single thing. There may be some anomalies there, but generally when they're young and small, they're not following everything, but to, to hear when prayer is offered and the posture of a bowed head, and then at the close, 
the amen coming from mom and dad is a testimony to them and is helping them understand some of the things that are going on. Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 6, this is his desire for Jew and Gentile. Despite all their cultural differences and the clashing of culture that happened there, his hope for them, Romans 15, 6, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not dealing with amen, but he is dealing with a sense of, of corporate unity, of a collective agreement that is, it becomes visible where his desire is for Jew and Gentile in their worship of the same God and their dependence upon the same Christ that they may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So an intentional and audible expression after corporate prayers, maybe praises of certain description where it seems appropriate, and benedictions at the end when the benediction is pronounced. The benediction is language of God to the people. In that sense, it, it is a kind of thus saith the Lord of the pastor before the congregation where he takes a scriptural benediction and articulates that, that it might be the experience of the congregation before whom he stands. But secondly, an intelligent and spiritual response to honorable desires. It's not just an intentional and audible expression, but intelligent and spiritual response. You're not just saying amen. It's to be intelligent and spiritual. To say amen is because there is a recognition, an understanding, and a spiritual response to what has been expressed. So you're following a law. That's part of what it is testifying to in all that has been said. You've been following along and you're in agreement. Now, there are some practices historically in various churches over history that, that we don't do. And, and a lot of these have fallen aside. They're no longer done. Uh, certain reformed uh, camps and, and influences, let's say, uh, they, they will have their ways of showing approval to what has taken place. For example, you'll have in, in some cultures, at least historically, where after the preacher preaches the sermon, the elders will line up and shake his hand before the congregation, giving a recognition to what has been said and their, their collective agreement with the word that has been declared. You don't find this very often. I went to one Dutch church and, and preached in a Dutch congregation, uh, or at least Dutch. I guess that's their heritage. They're, they're, they're American. They're no longer Dutch. But th that heritage is still very much there. And again, you, th there would have been a time where you'd have that going on. You would have all the elders at the front, right? They all sat without their wives, you know, the wives and children all over. And the elders were all sat. The whole consistory is sat at certain places there and there's for, for reasons where they would assent to the, what the preacher has said after the close of the service. In the particular church I was in, before the sermon, 
I was, I went around an entire room of men. There must have been about 30 men, this large congregation, and uh, the, um, the group of, that made up the elders and deacons of that church. Uh, they were all in this room, and I had to go around every single one of them and shake their hand. And they said, God bless you. Very intentionally, very purposefully. These are some ways in which in the past, there has been a sense of agreement to what's going on corporately. But whether we adopt certain practices like that, that's not my point. My point is that there has to be, or there should be, the entire congregation entering into what's being said. That the utterances are being appropriated to yourself in terms of blessings and prayers and so on. When we gather for corporate prayer... I think it's helpful for us to say an audible amen when a brother or a sister closes out their prayer. It, it indicates to them that you've been following every, every way, all along the way in terms of their praying. And it's real easy for us to switch off. I, in part, I wonder if the, the, some of the Baptist traditions of you know, the, the loud amens and that back and forth, and so I, I wonder, is this... Is this their way of keeping everyone awake? I mean, because it's quite effective if that's the purpose. You know, it has a certain functionality in regards to that. That's not meant to be the reason. That's not a good enough reason to do it. But I think there's grounds, and it does trigger something in us. When we hear, when someone has prayed, if you've switched off, if I can just illustrate this way, if you have, and this happens to us, we switch off in a time of prayer, and then, what happens if, when that person comes to the end of their prayer, and you have 90% of the gathered group say, Amen, it will, it will jolt you back in to engage in what you're there for. If it's just one person, you might easily ignore it. But there's some power to that, that collective body of everyone saying amen when that brother or sister finishes, when they all, everyone says amen, and you feel, I'm, I'm the only one that's kind of, it jolts you. I've, I've switched off. I've gone to sleep or my mind's drifted here. And it brings you back to what it is you're meant to be doing. So it does have a function. I don't know how this will look for us. <laughs> Having dealt with this, I was like, why am I dealing with this? But really, and I'm sure I could have dug deeper and I could have gone into lots more history and arguments and so on. But I've just been, this has been swirling around in my mind now for some time. And if there can be just a little bit, especially you men folk, if you the men, Hearing, hearing you men stand with the preacher entering into the intercessory prayers with a longing in your soul I want what he has just prayed for for us for me for my family I want that. And when we say amen, you echo that. Amen. Let it be, Lord. Let it be.
it might seem like I can just hold, like I can do it into myself. Is that not just the same? But it would appear, pulling all the scriptures together, that there's something to all of us, or at least the vast majority of us, giving public expression of agreement through this term that God and His providence hasn't even permitted to change across cultures and different languages, where there are a few words that no matter almost anywhere you go, people know what you mean. Okay? <laughs> I think it's one of them. It's like one of the most widely used words. Doesn't matter where you go, everyone understands. Okay? But amen is another one of them. Go to any nation almost, across the world, and God has governed providentially to keep this word, but it is to be harnessed with an understanding of what it is saying. I agree. I assent. I desire. I want. And I trust God who is faithful and given promises and through the merit of his Son who is the Amen can and will bring to pass his will for the good of his church and for the good of me and my family. So I encourage you, beloved, to give some thought to this. Not to think of it in a trite way. I don't want any of you taking this as, as permission to start yelling amen to make a point to everyone else. <laughs> I would encourage you. Do you agree with God's word and his promises? Do you follow along? Do you enter in? Are you imbibing his truth? Are you proactive or do you switch off? Do you come to certain parts of the service and you just sit back and you switch off? If you do, you're not in worship. So may the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. As we bow before the Lord at the close of this service tonight, there may be some of you that cannot agree with some of the things that get said in our worship. And you can't agree because you're not saved. God's word says if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That idea of confessing your sins is to agree with God is to say the same thing about sin that God says. In one sense, what you're doing in confession of sin is you're giving a kind of amen to what God says about your sin. And you haven't been brought to that point. You're still hiding. You're still holding on to your sin. You're still living as if you can avoid the judgment of God or as if you have all the time in the world and that you will come to Christ according to your own timetable. You're not guaranteed another day. 
And the way for you to start a life of agreement with God, of saying amen, is to acknowledge your sin. Is to say amen to what God says in the condemnation of your sin. And in the recognition of that, say the amen that only Jesus Christ is the answer. And you run to him and you plead with him for mercy. And he then will grant you the affirming amen. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Lord, help us. Continue to teach us thy ways. Even one word can be so packed with meaning and significance that you would have your people throughout all ages to make use of it. We pray that thou wilt give to us in spirit and in heart an agreement with our God a surrender of our own wills, a desire to see thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We plead, O God, that you'll be pleased to bring us more and more into line with thy mind so that when we are confronted with thy word, there is a natural and an easy agreement with our God. We've read these passages where thy people of old have been brought to see curses and they had to say amen to the curses. They were warranted. They were appropriate. These things can make us uncomfortable, but we'd far better be in agreement with God than in rebellion against God. So help us. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for him who has brought to pass the fulfillment of all promises and gives assurance to the church. And he will, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May we enter into his amen, into his desire. May we affirm his will. May we long for it to come to pass in our day. Bless our time of fellowship tonight. Meet with us. Prepare us for the week that lies ahead. Give us the fullness of the Holy Ghost, whatever the week holds. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of the people of God, now and evermore. Amen.